0: Knowing that the kids were going to be here this morning, I was remembering a story from when our children were, were little. It was our seminary days. We had three boys, Jordan, Jeremy, Luke, and they were little fellas. And Jordan went through a period of time where he was just enamored with big trucks. The bigger the better. And uh, one day we were out somewhere, and he saw a truck Was just huge, and he proclaimed it to everyone in the car. And I guess his little brother Luke was a little tired of hearing about big trucks. So, after Jordan's proclamation of this huge, gorgeous truck, Luke, the budding theologian, promptly responded, Yeah, it's not as big as Jesus. Who could argue? (laughs) The Gospels leave no doubt that Jesus loved children. Is there there any wonder why? You know, kids, they believe, they trust, they love at face value. I think it's significant that, that the Gospels never record Jesus saying to a child, are you still so dull? Don't you get it yet? But he said those kinds of things to his disciples. There are several places where he said that. And he also said that anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. I love the way that Matthew records it. He writes that that Jesus called a little child, had that child come over and stand among them, them being the disciples, and he said i tell you the truth unless you change unless you change and become like little children you will never enter the kingdom therefore whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven Isn't that interesting whoever humbles himself like this child that the action there it's it's implied of the adult you know that what child, what little child needs to humble themselves their children just are not caught up with a self-absorption they're They're not focused upon themselves in the sense of, "Whoa, it's really important that I look cool here, that I sound cool, that people think I'm cool." You know, my favorite story is of AJ when he announced on that Wednesday night to all of us at Lafayette, hey everybody, I just went poop. (laughs) It's important. Spoken like a child. When's the last time you announced that to a group of people? (laughs) Children have no trouble at all believing that Jesus is huge Of course he's bigger than a truck. Jesus is bigger than anything. They have no trouble believing and trusting. And I think Jesus loves that. So kids, I want you to know that you are a precious gift to us from God. And we are so thankful for you. We have so much to learn from you. So I want to pray for you. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the many many gifts that you have given us Lord how precious how precious that you would trust us that you would trust the parents that you would trust this extended family to uh, love these children as they deserve to be loved God that we would that we would passionately love them that we would faithfully pray for them that we would just wholeheartedly and enthusiastically listen to them and learn from them. For you, Lord Jesus said, that unless we change, and you know our excuses, we want to sophisticate that. We want to make that into something that it's not. You said unless you change, unless you have the faith of a little child to believe in a God who is big and great and awesome and wonderful. We will never enter the kingdom. We want to enter the kingdom. We want to enter with these children. And we want to gather together around your throne and give you praises for all of eternity. Thank you for these gifts. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're launching into the section of our Colossians 1 series where Paul is making much of Jesus. I have pictured Paul at times writing these things with the excitement of a child. Jesus is, is huge. And he is so excited that the Colossians know this, that they understand this, uh, that, they, that they, they gather around these foundational beliefs about Jesus. The magnificence, magnificence of the one whose kingdom we have been brought into. Remember last Sunday we we took what I think was a a spirit-led detour and spent a little bit more time focusing upon the divine rescue spelled out for us in verses 13 and 14 where God rescued us, Paul says, from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. Remember we can translate that the Son of his love brought us into that kingdom where we find ourselves living in a place as redeemed people with our sins forgiven. That's what Paul says in Ephesians, or excuse me, Colossians 1:13. and then we, we looked at Ephesians in chapter two, the first 10 verses, chapter that we have seen before, as the lens in order to, to look more closely and understand that divine rescue, with the hope that it would generate in us just a bit more of a "Wow. Do you have any wow moments this week as you thought about God, as you thought about what he's done for you as, you, as you thought about the life that he has given you in this kingdom of the Son whom he loved? Remember we saw his amazing love and grace as he stepped in and rescued us while we were, Paul says, objects of wrath. By nature we were objects of wrath. We had chosen to go our own way, do our own thing, and remember those wonderful words? But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And the importance of our detour last week was to be reminded of this important point. Spiritually dead people, which is what Paul is talking about, do not make decisions that bring spiritual life. Spiritually dead people are spiritually dead people. I know that's profound, It's hard to get our minds around that, but spiritually dead means spiritually dead. And therefore, we don't choose decisions that make life, which makes the rescue fabulous. God steps in, rescues us from the dominion of darkness, brings us into the Son of His love, the kingdom of the Son of His love. That means if we really get it, we will be very careful not to exalt ourselves not to in any way lift ourselves up as a part of the rescue effort. Oh, how wonderful I was. What a deal God got when he rescued me. We'll be cautious of those kinds of things because, folks, it just ain't so, okay? What we will do is we'll exalt Jesus. We'll make much of Jesus, the one who rescued us, the instrument that God used to rescue us. You know, Time Magazine ran a story on our 9-11 emergency response system. It It was earlier in this last year. It was created in 1968 to find and rescue people who were injured or dying. The ability for emergency workers to respond was based on the landline telephone network, which immediately gave operators the location of people in need. Well, as you can guess, the use of cell phones and other devices, landline phones are becoming obsolete and may someday disappear altogether. So while the name of the primary cell phone customer appears, their location could be anywhere. Panicked or injured callers sometimes don't know where they are. So on top of, you know, being hurt or endangered, they're also lost and disoriented. Disoriented. And If emergency is in a multi-storied building, this writer said, the response crew must determine how to pick the right floor. The point of the story was a bit ominous. The emergency infrastructure that has become progressively less able to find people in need. Call centers are upgrading and diversifying their technology, but in the end, the advanced technology can't always reach people in crisis. Guess what? I've got good news. God has no need to update his 9-11 system. It's old technology, and it still works perfectly. Never fails to reach people where they are in crisis. Anybody want to say Yahoo? Jeez, let's wake up as we read our Colossians 1 text this morning. Listen closely to Paul's description of Jesus. I think it's his intention in this text to... uh, to cause a wow to rise up within us. So, let's try to be a little less sophisticated and think to ourselves, wow. So, let's stand, let's read. He wants the Colossians and he wants the believers at Appwood to be clear about uh, this rescuer, who he is, what he does. Let's read together. The Son Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Yeah, wow. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Now, Melanie, would you put those, those uh, verses 15 through 17 back up for us if you could? We're going to zero in on four lofty descriptions that, uh, that Paul makes here in these verses of Jesus. The first one is that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. He's the creator. Paul says that by him all things were created. And the fourth statement that he makes in him all things hold together. Now, I want you to turn to your neighbor and talk about that first one. He is the image of the invisible God. Specifically, ask your neighbor what does that mean? And why does Paul start with that one? See what your neighbor thinks. What does that mean? And why does he start with it? He's the image of the invisible God. Okay, we ready? (laughs) What does that mean? Did anybody look at you and say, I have no idea? What does that mean? What do you think, Ellen? Okay. 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 What else? Mm-hmm. But God Okay. are Okay, okay. what are the aspects Jesus forgiveness, grace, mercy. Okay. Good, good. <laughs> those are good. I like those. She's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, so we look to his life, his actions, his words, to see the, the likeness of God, the image of God. What else? Any, anything else? Okay. Yes. Right. Right. Okay, okay. Good, good. Monica, what were you going to add? Um I said, well, Christ is a uh is a god cuz we can see him in fact as well we can't cuz he's not here. So that means like Christ. Ah. That gets a little tricky, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Good, good. Why do you think I mean, this is, this is good. you're wrestling with this. Why do you think he started with this? Dixie? I'm not sure Okay, OK, good. Good observation. Excellent. Excellent. Good observation. Therese. can look Oh, not a little mistake. That's a big mistake. Yeah. Like hmm Have you ever caught yourself or heard someone referring to God and referring to Jesus? Oops! Jesus is God. So when we refer to God, to be correct, we ought to be referring to the Father, God, Jesus, the Son, as God, and the Holy Spirit of God. Yeah. You know, it's, Zach, want to add? <laughs> yeah. Oh, surely you don't really believe that. Oh, wait, wait. I know you do. That's right. What am I thinking? <laughs> yeah, and that gets into what Monica's talking about the body of Christ in the world. Yeah, Doug? exactly exactly yeah good good observation good observation such good stuff you guys are wrestling with the right things you know i like what one commentator says about this text and, and I think he says this, in, you know, keeping us in mind, we come to something like this and we immediately begin to wrestle with, with the reality of the incarnation. And who really gets that? Answer, no one. But, but we know that it's axiomatic to the Christian faith. I mean, it, it, has, been, it has been the bedrock of orthodoxy uh, regardless of which branch you might go down in terms of what do we believe about Jesus. And so, this commentator says, you know, Paul was not writing this letter as a document to be studied in a seminar or interpreted in a commentary, but as something he knew would be read aloud as part of the church worship. You know, the church, the folks in Colossae, living in what we now call modern-day Turkey, it was a Greek-speaking congregation, they lived under the Roman Empire, and it sounds strange to us to maybe link the idea of an image with something invisible, but in the Greek philosophy of that day, it was understood that oftentimes the, the image of something had a share in the reality that it revealed, and in fact, it was said to be the reality. Alan mentioned, you know, looking in the mirror. Uh, it's it's kind of like that. When I look in the mirror, the person looking back is me. I've never looked in the mirror and seen somebody else. I look in the mirror, and it's me. But, but it's not me. It's an image of me. But it's, but it's me. It's me that I'm looking at, but it's not really me. It's an image that I'm... Does that make your head hurt? But you know what I'm saying? You know, you tap on the glass, and you go, oh, that's not me. But it is me. It's, it's my It's my image. And so when we look at Jesus... We are seeing God in all his fullness in bodily form, as Lee was getting at. Paul says that in verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. you want to read some fascinating stuff. Read what the church fathers did with this kind of stuff as they were wrestling out the creeds to define their Christology and what we believe and why we believe it. Oh my, did they wrestle. fullness, Of God dwelling in Jesus. And in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Paul wants the Colossians to be crystal clear about who it is that has rescued them. Is it a mystery? Absolutely it's a mystery. God does not have a human form. God is invisible, but in Christ Jesus, the Son, he assumed a human form and became visible. Remember the video clip that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, street interviews on Denver, people were asked, who is Jesus? There were a variety of answers, but none of them really dealt with the divine nature of Jesus Christ. I think this is it's really where kind of the crux of the issue comes to, um, one commentator that I was reading suggests that there's a similar sentiment that is happening among scholars and historians today that 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 traditionally have have been identified in, you know, just the, the, the Christian realm. He says that popular studies on the historical Jesus have made Christ even smaller to the point of inconsequence. They have classified Jesus variously as a political revolutionary, as a messianic schemer, as a Galilean charismatic holy man, a wandering peasant, or a countercultural crusader. The Jesus of history usually comes out looking remarkably like the theological image of the historians. They leave little room for Christ's divinity. Paul is making... A lot of room for Christ's divinity. He's putting it at the top of the list because he knows that the truth that the church has affirmed for ages is this. Only God can save. Only God can save. If Jesus is not God, then he cannot save a single soul. Only God can save. So, when Paul makes this lofty statement he is the image of the invisible God, we have been brought in, we need to realize we've been brought into the kingdom of the son that God loves. It means that we are living in a kingdom where God is king. What does that mean? It means it's a safe and secure place. That should increase our wow factor over what God has done. If you have been brought into the kingdom of the son of his love, then you will never be safer than where you are. And can I just add this as a P.S., no extra charge? In this election year, we need to remember this. Because in November, somebody is going to get elected that you don't like. Somebody's going to get elected that somebody else doesn't like. Worse yet, somebody's going to get elected that your neighbor loves, you can't understand why they love him. We are citizens in the kingdom of God. Because a lot of our concerns, if we're honest, a lot of our concerns, even though we identify concerns that we think have 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 moral validity and moral value and we want candidates to, to run on those things, truth be told, oftentimes we're concerned about how their presidency is going to impact my life, my security, my future, my jobs, my savings, my pension. Those sorts of things. I'm not saying that that's the whole deal. But if we're honest, there are a lot of concerns that relate to my well-being. The news is, when you live in the kingdom of God, you are never safer than where you are. Never, never. Second lofty statement that Paul makes. He says Christ is the firstborn over all creation. We hear that word and we associate it naturally with uh, with birth order. This is the text that cults will sometimes use to establish Jesus as a created being. It makes no sense when it flows right out of what Paul has just said the firstborn or the first created of many whom God created that's that's the the the, uh, the logic Luke chapter 2 verse 7 you remember the story of Jesus birth he is called the firstborn son of Mary and in his humanity that is true however Paul is using the language here in this text very differently he's using it to imply a priority in time he's using it to 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 point to Christ's divinity, and it's a title of sovereignty. In Psalm 89, verse 27, God says of King David, I will appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. Some see in that a messianic promise. and Though David was not the firstborn son of his father Jesse, God chose to appoint him as firstborn king. Do you see that? It's, it's a position of exaltation he became a king of priority through whom the Messiah would come. This is the language that Paul is using. When he talks about Jesus being the firstborn of all creation, he is distinguishing Jesus Christ from all created things. As before them in time, and supreme over them. He uses words like over the creation to show that Jesus Christ is not only supreme over all the things in creation, but he is supreme over all creation he outranks everything so let me ask you a question if paul is saying <coughs> excuse me that there is no one and that there is no thing more important than jesus christ he's the exalted one he is the firstborn that means he has the priority he has the privileges if that is true <coughs> and then paul also said in romans chapter eight that those who are the children of god are co-heirs with Christ. That is also more firstborn language. What does that say about your importance to God? You ever thought about that? If Jesus is firstborn and he is exalted and he is priority, and yet Paul makes that incredible statement that we are heirs, co-heirs with Christ, what is that saying about the importance of God's people to the heart of God? Do you ever have days when, when you're down about yourself, when you're down about life, about things and people and fill in the blank? Things aren't just, they're just not the way that you've planned them. Life doesn't go the way that we want it to. You need to remember this. I need to remember this. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and you have confessed Him as Lord, then that means you are a co heir with the one who is exalted and supreme over everything and is the recipient of all the blessings and privileges of God. Because He is exalted, you are exalted as a co heir. That's a big wow. Thank you, Zach. Because he is loved by God the Father for all of eternity, you are loved by God the Father for all of eternity. Because he is the recipient of God's marvelous presence for all of eternity, guess what? You are the recipient of God's marvelous presence for all of eternity. Are you thinking wow yet? Wow, wow, wow. That's what it means to be rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son he loves. So let me ask you, what is it you were feeling down and discouraged about? Third lofty statement that Paul makes, Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. Note what Paul writes, things in heaven... And on earth, visible and invi- invisible, I can't speak, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In the ancient world, heaven was not perceived as we so often perceive it as this, this faraway, distant place. The spiritual realm was nearby. And it had significance and it had impact upon human life. There were powers and rulers <clears throat> that were at work in the spiritual realm. You ever wonder, when you, when you read the scriptures, especially the Gospels, the book of Acts, there's a lot of, of spiritual stuff, demons at work and, and present. You ever think there is perhaps more of that going on now than we, than we realize? Um. I, you know, I think maybe we are just a little bit more dignified and culturally advanced than those primitive people. And therefore, we call it something else. Now, you know me. I'm not looking for spirits and demons under every rock and behind every tree. But I do think that it's probably more significant than we understand. And Paul's point is that Jesus Christ has majesty, and power and authority over all the powers no matter where they are and no matter what shape they take. So, let me ask you again. What is it that causes you fear? What are you worried about? The one who rescued you? The one who rescued you and whose kingdom you live is in control of everyone and everything. Spiritual or earthly powers bow to Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, fourth and last lofty statement, and this will be very quick. In all in him, all things hold together. In him, all things hold together. Think divine glue. Think spiritual gravity. <clears throat> he holds all of creation together. One commentator expresses it this way. He keeps the cosmos from becoming a chaos. I love that. He does indeed, as we have so often sung, have the whole world in his hands. Kids have no trouble believing that. We, on the other hand, are adults. And we struggle. We struggle to really believe that in Jesus Christ all things hold together. Here's what's fascinating to me. The verb that Paul uses for which we translate those two words, hold together, it implies that they have their existence in him. So not only you know is it, is it the sense of he's, he's holding it all together, it's, it's much more than that. They wouldn't exist if he didn't. Their very life, their very breath, is because Jesus is who he is. In other words, he's the basic operating principle controlling all of existence. The universe is not self-sufficient, nor are human beings, no matter how hard we try to be sometimes. Paul is saying that whether or not people know it, they are dependent upon Jesus Christ for their very breath. Praise team, why don't you come on up and prepare to lead us as we close. My brothers and sisters, I hope I hope that you have sensed a little bit of Paul's excitement here in this text and that that perhaps his excitement is becoming your excitement. This is not a ho-hum thing that we believe. This is remarkable. This is is the Savior whom we say we believe in. This is the one who is the king of the kingdom in whom we have been brought into. Wow. Couldn't be safer. Couldn't be more wonderful. Couldn't be more secure in terms of things that we don't have to worry about. The challenge, of course. The challenge is to take the truth of that in theory and ask the Spirit of God to settle it into our hearts so that it becomes real in where we live our lives every moment of every day. Paul has some more things to say about that as we move along. Amen? Amen. Amen.